Hello. Hello. We are back with more Infinite Cast, the podcast about a big, big old book. Back in cast. Back in cast. I'm back in cast. Sorry. Uh, hello. How are you, Molly? I'm I'm good. I'm great. How are you? I'm well. I don't feel like we have any business off the top. Oh my my off the top business is the the gifts for our, our most devoted listeners. Are ordered and have arrived, and now it is simply a matter of us distributing them yes. uh, through the mail system, which I've heard is uh, tied up in people mailing Christmas gifts. So you know, maybe don't expect them before Christmas, but certainly the step one in a ten-step process of doing this is has happened. Uh, step one was deciding what to buy, and step two was buying it, and step three is receiving it. So we're on step four. Yeah. So step four. Uh, I've also heard that. Postage to Canada is very expensive right now. So uh, the several people who have who have messaged me from Quebec, uh, first of all, thank you for uh, uh, assuring me that you are not member of members of a uh, separatist terrorist organization. Uh, I take your word as a bond. Mm. Uh, but secondly, uh, be appreciative because I think it's going to send. <laughs> <laughs> it'll cost like fifteen dollars to are, send a, a, about ninety cents worth of materials. We to are appreciative of our Canadian, but we friends. love you most of all. Thank you. yes. And speaking of Canadian friends, are we about to get into some more Canadian bullshit? Yes, great. Sh- shall we? Shall we? Let's, let's shall. Let's let's shall. Um, we're back in uh we're back in the desert. Okay, great. Uh, after having hung out in the locker room last last episode, when the boys were back in town, yes. All right. The feminized American stood at a slight angle to Morath upon the outcropping. He stared out at the dusk shadow they were now inside, and as well the increasingly complicated twinkle of the USA city Tucson, seemingly slackly transfixed steeply in the way vistas too large for the eye to contain transfixed persons in a type of torpid spectation. (laughs) Morath seemed on the edge of sleep, even the voice of Steeply had a different timbre inside the shadow. They say it's a great and maybe even timeless love, Rod Tynes, for your Luria person. <laughs> Marath grunted, shifting slightly in the chair. Steeply said, the sort that gets sung about, the kind people die for and then get immortalized in song. You got your ballads, your operas, Tristan and Isolde, Lancelot and What's-Her-Name, Agamemnon and Helen, Dante and Beatrice. There was, Mor- a, there was a chick in the Inferno? <laughs> I don't know. Morath's drowsy smile continued upward to become a wince. Narcissus and Echo, Kierkegaard and Regina, <laughs> Kafka and that poor girl afraid to go to the post box for the mail. Interesting choice of example here, the mailbox, steeply pretended to chuckle. Morath came alert. Take off your wig and be shitting inside it, Hugh steeply BSS. <laughs> And the ignorance of you appalls me. Agamemnon had no relation with this queen. Menelaus was husband, him of Sparta. And you mean Paris, Helen and Paris, he of Troy. Steeply seemed amused in the idiotic way. Paris and Helen, the face that launched vessels. The horse, the gift which was not a gift. The anonymous gift brought to the door. The sack of Troy from inside. Morath rose slightly on his stumps in the chair. So showing some emotions at this steeply. I am seated here appalled at the naivete of history of your nation. Paris and Helen were the excuse of the war. 
all the Greek states, in addition to the Sparta of Menelaus, attacked Troy because Troy controlled the Dardanelles and charged the ruinous tolls for passage through, which the Greeks, who would like very dearly the easy sea passage for trade with the Oriental East, resented with fury. It was for commerce, this war. The one quotes love, one does not quote, of Paris for Helen, it merely was the excuse. Always about the dang Dardanelles. Steeply, genius of interviewing, sometimes affected more than usual idiocy with Marath, which he knew baited Marath. Everything reduces itself to politics for you guys. Wasn't that whole war just a song? Did that war even really take place that anybody knows of? The point is that what launches vessels of war is the state and community and its interests, Marath said without heat, tiredly. You only wish to enjoy to pretend for yourself that the love of one woman could do this. Launch so many vessels of alliance. Steeply was stroking the perimeters of the mesquite scratch, which made his shrug appear awkward. I don't think I'd be so sure. Those around Rod the God say the man would die twice for her. Say he wouldn't even have to think about it. Not just that he'd let the whole of Onan come down if it came to that, but die. Morath sniffed twice <laughs> without even having to pause and think steeply said stroking at his lips electrolysistic rash in a ruminative fashion it's the reason most of us think he's still there why he's still got president gentle's ear divided loyalties are one thing but if he does it for love well then you've got a kind of tragic element that transcends the political wouldn't you say steeply smiled broadly down at morath morath's own betrayal of afr for medical care for the conditions of his wife, for, Steeply might imagine to think, love of a person, a woman. Tragic, saying as if Rodney Tyne of nonspecificity were not responsible for choosing it, as the insane are not responsible, said Morath quietly. Steeply was now smiling even more broadly. It, kind of, it has a kind of tragic quality, timeless, musical, that how could gentle resist? Morath's tone now became derisive despite his legendary song fraud in matters of technical interviews. These sentiments from a person who allows them to place him in the field as an enormous girl with tits at the cockeyed angle now discoursing on tragic love. <laughs> Steeply, impassive and slackly ruminative, picked at the lipstick of the corner of his mouth with a littlest finger, <laughs> removing some grain of grit, gazing out from their shelf of stone. But sure, the fanatically patriotic wheelchair assassins of southern Quebec scorn this type of interpersonal sentiment between people. Looking down now at Marath. No, even though it's just this that has brought you Tyne, yours for Luria to command, should it ever come to that. Marath had settled back on his bottom in the chair. Your USA word for fanatic. Fanatic. Do they teach, it, do they teach you it comes from the Latin for temple? It is meaning, literally, worshiper at the temple. Oh, Jesus, now here we go again, Steeply said. As, if you will give the permission, does this love you speak of, M. Tyne's grand love, it means only the attachment. Tyne is attached, fanatically. Our attachments are our temple, what we worship, no? What we give ourselves to, what we invest with faith. Steeply made motions of weary familiarity. Here we go. Marath ignored this. Are we not all of us fanatics? I say only what you of the USA only pretend you do not know. Attachments are of great seriousness. 
Choose your attachments carefully. Choose your temple of fanaticism with great care. What you wish to sing of as tragic love is an attachment not carefully chosen. Die for one person? This is a craziness. Persons change, leave, die, become ill. They leave, lie, go mad, have sickness, betray you, die. Your nation outlives you. A cause outlives you. How are your wife and kids doing up there, by the way? You USAs do not seem to believe you may each choose what to die for. Love of a woman, the sexual, it bends back in on the self, makes you narrow, maybe crazy. Choose with care. Love of your nation, your country and people. It enlarges the heart, something bigger than the self. Steeply laid a hand between his misdirected breasts. Oh, Canada. <laughs> Marath leaned again forward on his stumps. Make amusement all you wish, but choose with care. You are what you love, no? You are completely and only what you would die for without, as you say, the thinking twice. You, M. Hughes, steeply, you would die without thinking for what? The AFR's ex extensive file on steeply included mention of his recent divorce. Morath had already had informed steeply of the existence of this file. He wondered how badly Steeply doubted what he reported, Morath, or whether he assumed its truth simply. Though the persona of him changed, Steeply's car for all field assignments was this green sedan subsidized by a painful ad for aspirin upon its side. <laughs> the file knew this stupidity. Morath was sure the sedan with its aspirin advertisement was somewhere below them, unseen. The fanatically beloved car of M. Hugh Steeply. Steeply was watching or gazing at the darkness of the desert floor. He did not respond. His expression of boredom could be real or tactical, either of these. Marath said, This, is it not the choice of the most supreme importance? Who teaches your USA children how to choose their temple? What to love enough not to think two times? This from a man who... Marath was willing that his voice not rise. For this choice determines all else. No, all other of our, you say, free choices follow from this. What is our temple? What is the temple thus for USAs? What is it when you fear that you must protect them from themselves if wicked Quebecers conspire to bring the entertainment into their <laughs> warm homes? Steeply's face had assumed the openly twisted, sneering expression, which he knew well Quebecers found repellent on Americans. But you assume it's always choice? conscious decision this isn't just a little naive remy you sit down with your little accountant's ledger and soberly decide what to love always the alternatives are what if sometimes there is no choice about what to love what if the temple comes to mohammed what if you just love without deciding you just do you see her and in that instant are lost to sober account keeping and cannot choose but to love marath's sniff held disdain then in such a case, your temple is self and sentiment. Then in such an instance, you are a fanatic of desire, a slave to your individual, subjective, narrow self-sentiments, a citizen of nothing. You become a citizen of nothing. You are by yourself and alone, kneeling to yourself. A silence ensued this. Marath shifted in his chair. In a case such as this, you become the slave who believes he is free, the most pathetic of bondage, not tragic, 
No songs. You believe you would die twice for another, but in truth would die only for your alone self. It's sentiment. Another silence ensued. Steeply, who had made his early career with unspecified services, conducting technical interviews, which takes us to end note number 44. Uh, professional euphemism for involuntary interrogation, either with or without physical inducements. Uh, yes, I was going to wonder if I was about to wonder if technical interviews involved a uh, cloth and a bucket of water. Mm-hmm. Uh, used silent pauses as inter- integral parts of his techniques of interface. Here, it diffused Morath. Morath felt the ironies of his position. One strap of, te- of Steeply's prosthesis brazier had slipped into view beyond his shoulder, where it cut deeply into his flesh of the upper arm. The air smelled fran- faintly of creosote, but much less strongly smelling than the ties of train tracks, which Morath had smelled at close range. <laughs> Steeply's back was broad and soft. Morath eventually said, You, in such a case, have nothing. You stand on nothing. Nothing of ground or rock beneath your feet. You fall. You blow here and there. How does one say? Tragically, involuntarily, lost. Another silence ensued. Steeply farted mildly. (laughs) Morath shrugged. (laughs) The BSS field operative Steeply may not have been truly sneering. The city Tucson's loom appeared a bleached and ghostly white in the unhumid air. Crepuscular animals rustled and perhaps scuttled. Dense and unbeautiful spider webs of the poisonous USA species of spider black widow were beneath the shelf and the incline's other outcroppings. And when the wind hit certain angles in the mountainside, it moaned. Morath thought of his victory over the train that had taken his legs, which takes us to end note 45. <laughs> victory over the, what did he do, eat it? See note 304. Oh boy. Uh oh. Do we do it now? I thought we came to this. We, we did, so they keep referring to, to this later note, notes. and I feel like maybe we should just do it. I think maybe it's time for Is you to do it. Is this the know. second time that they've referred yeah. to this note? Okay, let's let's do it. Let's do note 304. This might, this might be a bit long. I'll, I will pause. Um, I have to admit, I'm finding this Marath and Steeply thing a little difficult to follow. And of, of the stuff that we've done so far, um, despite my, my love of Quebecois separatists, uh, this conversation, this long conversation on the Tucson Hill is, is a little, uh, yeah, this is the draggy most, for me. This is definitely the most like bo- straight up boring part of the book. Like, I want to know just... what, what these guys get up to, obviously, like the wheelchair assassins, obviously, I'll tell, t- please, t- I would like to know more, but uh, you know, it just seems like of all the stuff that we've read so far, this is the thing that's like 25 pages when it could have been like 10. Or... This is a bit long. Should we dive in and do it? Should we just do it? All right. Yeah. I think we should just do. It. We got to learn why Morath is the way he is. Yeah, I think so. And I want. And look, that's how he defeated the train that took his legs. That's a uh, that that is a uh, compelling teaser. Uh, okay. Let Let's get into it. Let's fucking go. Here's the thing, though. It's not just a, a straight up footnote. It's a footnote in the form of an academic paper written by an ETA student. Okay, I'm so great. sorry. Yes, go for it, David. Okay. End note three hundred four. Uh, QV at uh, 20, 30 hours on 11th of November year of the DAU, 308 Subdorm B, Enfield Tennis Academy, where James Albrecht Lockley Struck Jr. sits slumped, chin in hands, 
forehead slathered in C2H5CO2O2A. I assume that's sunscreen or something. Yeah. Elbows on tiny cleared spots on desktop. TP compactly humming. Word processing converter plugged into its green lit dock. HD screen set atop the cartridge viewer chassis on its fold-out support like a loved one's photo. Keyboard hauled out of McGee-like chaos of closet and set on heavy touch. Cursor throbbing softly at screen's upper left <laughs> before struck. Okay! Hunch blearily over what's starting to emerge as like unabsorbable amounts of research material for his post-midterm term paper for Ms. Potrincourt's History of Canadian Unpleasantness course thing. <laughs> Struck always refers mentally to his classes as things. That sounds like how they would teach like 20th century history in Germany or something. <laughs> <laughs> the history, uh, well, history like of this, Ger the German unpleasantness. It's like um, the War of Northern Aggression. Yeah, exactly. It's that that track. <laughs> yes, how you would learn about slavery in like an Alabama pub public school that's like, ah, uh, yes, the 19th century unpleasantness. The, the, the history of the Southern oopsie. <laughs> uh,. Original hopes for at least originality of topic have long since gone over the side of the boat emotionally. It turns out the more luridly absorbing the angle of topic you choose, the more people have already been there before you with their footprints to fill and their obscurely academic-type journal articles to try and absorb and, like, synthesize. I wonder if this is uh, coming from someplace personal for DFW. A. Struck's been at this over an hour, and his original sights have lowered considerably. He's been feeling a bit punk all day. Sinuses with that infallible storms-on-the-way feeling of weight and clot, and a goalie mask headache that throbs with his heart. And he's now trying to find some new resource in the piles that's obscure and amateurish enough for him to transpose and semi-plagiarize without worrying about Court having read it or smelling a rat in the woodpile. Almost as little of irreproachable scholarly definitiveness is known about the infamous separatist wheelchair assassins, Les Assassins de Fauteuil Roland, or <laughs> AFRs, of southwestern Quebec, as is accepted as axiomatic about the herds of oversized feral infants alleged reputed, allegedly reputed to inhabit the periodically over-inhabitable forested sections of the Eastern Reef configuration. <laughs> uh, yes? Oh, I was just going to say, it's funny that he's calling it over-inhabited because uh, the region that I believe he's referring to, like the uh, like main Canada border, is literally called the Empty Quadrant because literally no one no lives, one lives in there. Like, the western part of Maine. It's funny. Like uh, literally zero people. A BPL Archfax database search off the conjunctive key terms AFR, wheelchair, fauteuil roulant, Quebec, Quebec <laughs> with an accent, separatism, terrorist, experialism, history, and cult, which you think would narrow things down nicely, yielded over 400 items, articles, essays, and papers in everything from the continent to us, from foreign affairs to something called wild conceits, <laughs> a woebegone little marginal archaic desktop pub-looking thing put out by someplace called Bayside Community College up I-93 in Medford, nowhere near any bays. Wild, wild conceits would be another a good name for Truanon. Yes. And edited by the same named guy whose wild conceits wheelchair killer's essay struck, after having to read the first sentence a bunch of times to even make sense of it, gauges he's pretty safe in ripping off since no way Potron Corded have spent the time to ESL her way through U.S. Academy's This Insufferable. 
that the prenominate oversized infants reputedly do exist, are anomalous and huge, grow but do not develop, feed on the abundance of annularly available edibles the overgrowth periods in the region represent, do deposit titanically outsized scat, and presumably do crawl thunderously about, <laughs> occasionally sallying south of murated retention lines and into populated areas of new New England. In a twist on the usual plagiarism situation, the hardest work for Struck here is going to be sanitizing the prose in this wild conceits guy's thing, or at least bringing the verbs and modifiers down out of the, like, total ozone, which the academies here on the whole sounds to Struck like the kind of foam-flecked megalograndiosity he associates with quaaludes and red wine, and then the odd preludin to pull out of the grandiose nosedive of the quaaludes and red wine. Quaaludes and red wine sounds like a great combo it yeah. sounds like a fantastic night in uh <laughs> plus let's not even mention repair work on the freewheeling transitions potrincourt has a fetishy thing about transitions the massive feral infants formed by toxicity and sustained by annulation however are from the vulgate perspective of this year of the whisper quiet maytag dishmaster. that's a new one that's a new one essentially passive icons of the experialist gestalt <laughs> Would that the infamous assassin de Fauteuil Roland were as well. Struck can almost see Potrincourt putting a big red triple underlined qua under a transition this tortured and freewheeling. <laughs> Struck pictures the wild conceits guy totally strafed as he goes, weaving over his foam-flecked desktop almost. For the infamous Quebecer separatist AFR cells claimed to irreducibly active status include the following. The legless Quebecer wheelchair assassins, although legless and confined to wheelchairs, nevertheless contrive to have situated large reflective devices across odd-numbered United States highways for the purpose of disorienting and endangering northbound Americans, to have disrupted pipelines between processing points in the Eastern Reconfiguration's annular fusion grid, having been linked to attempts at systemic damage of the federally contracted Empire Waste Displacement's launch and reception facilities on both sides of the reconfigured intracontinental border, so we, we've covered this before, but the, the idea that he's getting at, or which I'm sure will be fleshed out a little more, is that we literally launch trash in a giant catapult into some kind of giant hole that is in, that is in the middle of Canada now? Absolutely. Okay, great. That is what happens. Good, 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 uh, good on you. <laughs> good, good inference. Good inference. Um, reception facilities on both sides of the ink reconfigured intercontinental border and perhaps most infamously derive their cells own sobriquet in the vox populi wheelchair assassins from the active pra practice of assassinating prominent canadian officials who support or even tolerate what they the afrs in infrequent public communiques regard as both quebec and canada's in totos sudetenlandization <laughs> <laughs> by the as afr characterize it same american dominated organization of north american nations which forced ecologically distorted and possibly mutagenic territory into their, the nation of Canada, and more, most specifically and intensively, the province of Quebec. Aegis, a, Aegis how do you pronounce Aegis? Aegis, A-E-G-I-S. Yeah. Aegis in the newly subsidized Year of the Whopper. 
struck, canted slightly in his desk chair from the overdevelopment of his body's right side, is also trying to carve up each of this diuretic GT day MS guy's clauses into less long self-contained sentences that sound more earnest and pubescent, like someone earnestly struggling toward truth instead of flecking your forehead with spittle as he ranted grandiosely. <laughs> back, back into the text. The wheelchair assassins at these all too publicly familiar assass- assassinations materializing, quote, as if from nowhere, unquote, masters of stealth, striking terror into prominent Canadian hearts, affording no warning, excepting the ominous squeak of slow wheels, <laughs> striking swiftly and without warning, assassinating prominent Canadians and then dissolving back into the dark night. As opposed to a light night, struck forces sudden air through his full nose, producing a low and horn-like derisive sound. Striking always at night, a type of performative signature, to strike at night only, leaving behind only sinuous networks of thin double tracks in snow, dew, leaves, or earth as performative signatures, such that a double sinuous S-shaped line across the traditional fleur-de-lis motif of Quebecois separatism is the AFR cell's standard. It's escutcheon or symbol, if you will, in their infrequent and always hostile communiques to the administrations of Canada and ONAN. Sorry, I I've, I've did not pick up that the first two times I've read this the, book. That they... they uh... Their Do logo is tracks. a wheelchair track over the fleur de <laughs> Such that, quote, to hear the squeak, unquote, is now an understood euphemismic locution among officials highly placed in Quebecois, Canadian, and Onanite power structures for instant, terrifying, and violent death. And for the media as well. As in, quote, before many thousands of shocked subscribers, newly elected Bloc Québécois leader Gilles Duceppe and an aide, guarded by no fewer than a dozen units of the domestic details elite mounted cuirassiers, nevertheless heard the squeak last night during a spontaneously disseminated address at the lakeside resort of Pointe-Claret. Uh, and which that leads us to a, a, a cited, footnote, a, fo- it, an, a footnote at the end note, which is just citing that the, the like where it was reported. Yeah, that, that that media report struck, clutching his head with one hand, is trying to find euphemismic in the TP's lex based affiliations, sometimes purported between the root cult core of Les Assassins on one hand and the more extreme and violently subversive of Quebec's separatister organizations, the Front de la Libération de la Québec, the Fils de Montcalm, the ultra-right anti-reconfigurative Vishnu of the Bloc Québécois, tend, however, to be contradicted by both stated agendas the conventional separatist phalanxes demanding only the independent secession of provincial Quebec and the elimination of Anglo-American cognates from public discourse. While I yeah. think they should do it, Quebec yeah. Quebec should separate, become their just own do country. It and be country. Just to be, yeah, just do it and be. They legends. already. It is so like not like the rest of Canada. <laughs> it is. I the first time I went there, it is you. You hear that Quebec is is French, and I kind of like imagine like oh. You know, they all have like little French signs and word, but it's like, oh, damn, it's like French here. It's deeply French. Um, also, just because it would be interesting. Yeah. You know, it would be fun to, yeah, shake it up. To, map, map is too, too Ma- boring right now. We'll get now. to that at the end of the end discussion. Um, all right. So that, that was the, uh, the Bois Quebecois. 
uh, while the AFR's stated aims being nothing less total than the total return of all reconfigured territories to American administration, the cessation of all EWD airborne waste displacement and asks me rota- rotary air mass <laughs> uh, air mass displacement activity within 175 kilometers of Canadian soil, the removal of all fission slash waste slash fusion annulars north of the 42 north parallel, and the secession of Canada in toto from the Organization of North American Nations. And by the fact that all too many prominent figures in the recent socio-history of the separatist movement for, e.g., Schneid, Charist, Remillard, both senior and junior Bouchards, <laughs> have in the last 24 months, particularly in the violent and bloody autumn of the year of the trial-sized Dove Bar, heard the squeak. <laughs> A lot of people hearing the squeak right now. Struck's little TP's internal Lex files confirm Vishnu, at least. Plus, there's a kind of almost savage edge to the article's incoherence that Struck's getting to almost like a little. He keeps imagining the little hyphen of wrinkle Potrincourt gets between her eyebrows when she doesn't follow something and can't quite tell if it's your English's fault or her English's fault. (laughs) Prior to YPWC's Freedom of Speculation Act, Credible socio-historical data on the origins and evolution of Les Assassins de Fauteuil-Hollande from its obscure, adolescent, nihilistic root cult to one of the most feared cells in the annals of Canadian extremism was regrettably patchy and dependent on the hearsay of sources whose scholarly veracity was of an integrity somewhat less than unimpeachable. <laughs> Struck here pictures theory... Uh, yeah, Thierry Potrincourt, who tends to get that little annoyed confusion wrinkle, sometimes even with the lucidest of term papers, lowering her tall head and charging into a wall. <laughs> One sinus feels noticeably bigger than the other sinus, and there's something not quite right with his neck from sitting hunched all the time, and he'd kill relatives for a quick Dubois. Les Assassins de Fauteuil-Hollande of Quebec are essentially cultists, locating both their political raison d'etre and their po- philosophical dasein uh, within the North American socio-historical interval of intensive special interest diffraction that preceded, nay, one might dare say stood in integral causal relation with respect to the nearly simultaneous inaugurations of Onanite governance, continental interdependence, and the commercial subsidization of a lunar ONAN calendar. Uh, like so wait, the subsidized calendar is a lunar calendar? It's lunar. Okay. Yes. Great. So this is all happening at the same time as what cult is happening. Like most Canadian cult extensions, however, the wheelchair assassins and their cultic derivations have proven substantially more fanatical, less benign, less reasonable, and substantially more malignant. In sum, more difficult for responsible authorities to anticipate, control, interdict, or reason with than even the most passionate U.S. cabals. U.S., it really is. We're not good at this stuff. We're not, sen- we're not sending our best cultists. Uh, this scholarly essay concurs in many essential respects with the thesis that Canadian and other non-American root cults, in contrast to all but what Phelps and Phelps argue are isolated pockets of anti-historical American stelliformism, persist so queerly in directing their reverent fealty toward principles, quote, often not only isomorphic with, but actively opposed to the cultist's own individual pleasure, comfort, 
qui bono, or entertainment as to be all but outside the ken of both the sophisticated predictive models of psychosocial science and the rudimentary comprehension of human reason. This is all just to say they crazy. <laughs> They're crazy, yes. <sighs> They're fanatics. I'm, as he was just saying that they were not. As Yeah, liar. This all takes serious labor for Struck to decoct the gist out of and then recast in rather less uptown and more basic studential prose. Twice in the hall outside his and Shaw's and Pemberton's room, Raider and Vaganect and some other 16s sounding males go down the hall, all of them going together, air ah e o ah air ah e, and so on. It is an accepted fact that Les Assassins' root cult in a fashion typical of those whose objects are divorced from the rational advancement of individual interest, takes for its rights and personality rituals intimately bound up with les jeux pour même, formal competitive games, whose end is less any sort of prize than it is a matter, a manner of basic identity, i.e., that is, game as metaphysical environment and psychohistorical locus and just gestalt. <laughs> Uh, Struck's own historical dad, during Jim's own childhood in Rancho Mirage, was an inveterate red wine with heavy tranks on the side dinner drinker uh, who used to make late night phone calls to people who didn't know very well and make <laughs> statements he later had to retract at great length until finally one autumn night the dad had staggered out and attempted a one and a half tuck into the Struck family's backyard pool that he hadn't recalled had been drained, Oh no! resulting in a neck brace for life that ended his career as a low 80s golfer, resulting in incredible bitterness and family trauma before little J.A.L.S. Jr. was shipped off to the Rolling Hills Academy. It is, for example, largely conceded that Les Assassins' confinement to their epithetic wheelchairs can be traced to rural southwestern pre-experialist Quebec's famous Le Jeu du Prochain Train. <laughs> Sorry, I'm going to do it. I should do it. And that the AFR's root cult itself was comprised largely or perhaps even entirely of veteran devotees and practitioners of the savage, nihilistic, and metal-testing Jeu pour même. All right, so here's, here's, here's the, the here's actual the explanation. Thing. Yes. La culte du prochain train, often translated as the cult of the next train, is, <laughs> is known to have originated at least a decade prior to reconfiguration among the male offspring of asbestos, nickel, and zinc miners in the desolate Papineau region of what was then extreme southwest Quebec. The Chilling Games competition and its upspringing cult soon spread throughout the network of non-ionized and pre-interdependent railroad lines, which carried raw minerals south to Ottawa and the United States' Great Lake ports. Over Struck's little desk hangs a model airplane made entirely from different parts of beer cans. While Inc. was keen on the whole lurid mirror-across-highway terrorism thing of early Onan, and Shaq's paper focus was the violent French Catholic protests against municipal fluoridation flor under Mul Mulroney, Strzok had picked the AFR and Russian roulette-ish train-jumping cult thing connection and was sticking to it with the same tenacity that kept him on the 18's A-Squad, despite a serve that DeLint described as resembling a debutante's curtsy. <laughs> the planes got flattened cans for wings, smunched flat cans for wheels, and part of a tall boy for fuselage and snout. Sounds funny. It sounds funny. 
I would like one. Me too. As with many games, Le Jeu du Prochain Train was in itself, it's substantially simpler than the organization of the competition. A cool smile from Struck. It was played after sunset at specified sites, specifically Les Passages à Niveau de Voie Ferrée that marked every rural Quebecer's roads intersection with the railroad track. In the year of the Whopper, there were over 2,000 such intersections in the Papineau region alone, though not all saw heavy enough flow to accommodate the complexities of true competition. <laughs> Six boys, minor sons, ages six to, uh, 10 to roughly 16, Quebecois French-speaking boys, line up on six railroad ties juts just outside the track. 216 boys, never either more nor less, are involved in a night's opening rounds, organized into sixes, each group of six taking its turn with a different train, standing on consecutive juts just outside one track, waiting, doubtless tense, awaiting the procession of a fearsome bride indeed. The night's heavily traveled crossings schedule of trains is known to Le Jeu du Prochain Train's episcopate of Les Directeurs du Jeu, older post-adolescent boys, veterans of previous Les Jeux, many of them legless and in wheelchairs, or, for the sons of asbestos miners, many orphaned and desperately poor, on crude rolling boards. No timepieces are permitted the players, who are under the absolute discretion of the game's directeurs, whose direct decisions are final and often brutally enforced. They are all silent, listening to the sound of the listening for the sound of the engine's whistle, a sound which is sad and cruel at the same time, as the sound approaches and begins to subtly undergo Doppler effects. They tense palely muscled legs beneath hand-me-down corduroys as the next train's one white eye rounds the track's curve and bears down on the game's waiting boys. Struck keeps bogging down in these parts where it seems like the guy just totally abandons a scholarly tone <laughs> and even probably starts making up or hallucinating details, which there's no way Jim Struck could represent himself as be being there to see. And he's blue delete looping all over the place, plus grinding his eye and picking at his forehead, his two or less more constant responses to creative stress. Le jeu du prochain train itself is simplicity in motion. The object be the last of your round six to jump from one side of the tracks to the other. That is, across the tracks, before the train passes. Your only real opponents are your sixes, other five. Never is the train itself regarded as an opponent. The speeding, screaming train is regarded rather as le jeu's boundary, arena, and reason. Its size, its speed down the extremely gradual north-to-south grade of what was then southwestern Quebec, and the precise mechanical specifications of each scheduled train, these are known to the directeurs. They comprise the constants in a game, the variables of which are the respective wills of the six ranged along the track, and their estimates of one another's will to risk all to win. Struck transposes clearly non-adolescent uptown material like this into the variable of the game isn't so much the matter of the train, but the player's courage and will. Okay. <laughs> See, he's done this a few times. He's like purposely overwriting something and then criticizing his own, uh, the, the, like joking on his own writing for being too purple. He's like making fun of bad, like bad writing yeah. that he itself indulges in. Yes. Though it's he clearly cool. loves writing like that. Yes. And then also it's thinking funny. that. <laughs> <It's> <sighs> the last few instants, vanishingly small, 
when the player may hurl himself athwart the expansive track. Also, for some, whatever reason, I'm finding this whole concept very upsetting. <laughs> it is upsetting. Yeah. Uh, across timber ties, creosote stench, gravel and scarred iron, amid the ear-splitting scream of the whistle almost overhead, able to feel the huge push of terrible air from the transport's cow catcher or express train's rounded nose to go sprawling in the gravel past the tracks' other side and roll to see wheels and flanges, couplings and driving rods, the furious back and forth of transverse axles, feeling the whistle steam condense to drizzle all around. These few seconds are known, familiar as their own pulse, to the boys who assemble and play. Strux now progressed to grinding the whole heel of his hand into his eye socket, producing a kind of ectoplasmic pinwheel of red in there. <laughs> Did, like, even pre-bullet railroad engines have flanges and cow catchers and whistles that steamed? Biggest mistake this far is suggesting that in the future America is going to have bullet trains. Yes. It's never going to fucking happen. Never. We will never get the good trains. In a disastrous lapse... <laughs> Struck copies hurl himself athwart, a decidedly unstruckish sounding verb phrase verbatim into his text. That the true variable, which renders le jeu du prochain train a contest and not merely a game, involves the nerve and heart and willingness to risk any of all, uh, all of any or all of the five waiting beside you at the track. How long can they wait? When will they choose? Their lives and limb worth. How their lives and limb worth how much queen headed coin this night? <laughs> More radical by far than the American youth automobile game of chicken, to which its principle is frequently compared. Five, not one, different wills to comparatively gauge, in addition to your own will's resolve, and no motion or action to distract you from the tension of waiting motionlessly to move, waiting as one by one the other five quail and save themselves, leap to beat the train. And then the sentence just ends without even a close to the parenthesis. Though struck with a canny sense for this sort of thing, knows the analogy to chicken will just ring ring just the right bell, term paper-wise. Lujeux's historic best, reportedly, however, ignore their five competitors completely, concentrating their entire attention on determining the last viable instant in which to leap, regarding the last, final, and only true opponent in this game, to be their own will, metal, and intuition about the last viable instance in which to leap. These nerveless few, Le Jeu's finest, many of whom will go on to directeur au futur jeu, if not often to membership in Les Assassins or its Stelliform offshoots, these nerveless and self-contained virtuosi never see their opponents flinches or, tack, or ticks or the darkenings at Corduroy's crotches. None of the normal... <laughs> None of the normal signs of will faltering which less players scan for. For the game's finest players frequently close their eyes entirely as they wait, trusting the railroad ties' vibration and the whistle's pitch, as well as intuition and fate and whatever numinous influences lie just beyond fate. Struck at certain points, imagines himself gathering this wild conceits guy's lapels together with one hand and savagely and repeatedly slapping him with the other. Forehand, backhand, forehand. <laughs> the Colts game's principle is simple. The last of the six to jump before the train and land intact wins the round. The fifth through the second to leap have lost but acquitted themselves. The first in a round to quail and jump walks home from there, alone under the moon, disgraced and ashamed. 
That would be me. Yeah. But even the first to quail and jumped has jumped. Far beyond prohibited, not to jump at all is regarded as impossible. To perdre son cœur, lose your heart, and not jump at all is outside le jeu's limit. The possibility <laughs> simply does not exist. It is unthinkable. Only once in le jeu du prochain train's extensive oral history has a minor son not jumped, lost his heart and frozen, remaining on his jut as the rounds train passed. This player later drowned. <laughs> Père Soeur, which is mentioned at all, when it is mentioned at all, is also known as Fear on Bernard Wayne. <laughs> <laughs> the fear of Bernard Wayne. No, to do a Bernard Wayne. Uh, in dubious honor of this lone, unjumping asbestos miner's son, about whom little, be- who little beyond his subsequent drowning in the Basketong Reservoir is known, his name denoting a figure of ridicule and disgust among speakers of the Papineau region's Vulgate. <laughs> how, much, how much longer is this? Just one more Just page. Just one more page. Okay, great. I was We're just saying before there. we started this that we should keep the reading sentence uh, a little uh, shorter. Tu, I know. Ah, uh, tu fais Bernard Wayne. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the game's object, uh, oh yeah, sorry, disastrously struck blithely transposes this stuff too with not even a miniature appliance-sized bulb flickering anywhere over his head. The game's object is to jump last and land still fully limbed upon the opposite embankment. Expresses are 30 kilometers per hour faster than it conventional transports, but a transport's cow catcher mangles. A boy struck head-on by a moving train is shot as if from a cannon, knocked out of his shoes, describes a towering flailing arc, and is transported home in a burlap sack. Ugh. A player caught beneath a wheel and run over is frequently spread out along a hundred red meters or more of reddened track. Ugh. And is transported home in a number of, and is transported home in a number of ceremonial asbestos and nickel mining shovels provided by the jeu's older and more frequently dismembered directors. Oh God! As happens more often, purportedly, a boy who has dived more than halfway across the tracks when he is struck and hit loses one or more legs, either there on the spot if lucky or later, under surgical gas and orthopedic saws applied to what are customarily violently angled masses of unrecognizably contuded meat. The paradox here for Struck as plagiarist, who needs something with sufficient detail to be able to basically just rehash, is that this thing here has almost too much detail. <laughs> much of it purple. It doesn't even seem all that scholarly. Seems more like the wild conceits Bayside CC guys seemed to get more and more tipsy as the thing went on <laughs> until he felt free to make a lot of it up, like e.g. the contuted meat bits, etc. <laughs> What's interesting to Hal and Condenza about his take on Struck, sometimes Pemulus, Evan Ingersoll, et al., is that congenital plagiarists put so much more work into camouflaging their plagiarism than it would just take to write up an assignment from conceptual scratch. (laughs) It usually seems like plagiarists aren't lazy so much as kind of navigationally insecure. They have trouble navigating without a detailed map's assurance that somebody has been this way before them. About this painstaking care to hide and camouflage the plagiarism, whether it's dishonesty or a kind of kleptomaniacal thrill-seeking or what, Hal hasn't developed much of any sort of take. It is frightfully simple and straightforward. Sometimes the last of the six to jump is struck. 
Then the second to last leaper becomes the last and victor and advances, each winner literally surviving into the game's next round, a sort of sextupled semifinal, six rounds of six Canadian boys each, the, quote, les trente-six for the evening. The initial rounds is boys, those who have been neither the last nor the disgraceful first to leap, are permitted to stay at the Le Passage à Niveau de Voix Ferrée, assembled to become the semifinalist's silent audience. The entire Le Jeu du Prochain Train is customarily conducted in silence. In a disastrous and maybe unconsciously self-destructive set of lapses, Struck rehabilitates the prose but keeps a lot of the hallucinatory, specific, descriptive stuff in, unfootnoted, though there's obviously no way he could pretend to have been there. The surviving losers from among the Les Transics then swell the ranks of the silent gallery as the six nervous winners, the finalists, the night's, uh, this night's attendant longtemps c'est tour, <laughs> some bleeding or gray with shock, survivors already of two separate long-delayed leaps and hair-breadth escapes, eyes blank or closed, mouths working in savored distaste, await the nightly two... Uh, 2359 Express, the ultra-ionized Le Train de la Foudre from Mont-Tremblant to Ottawa. They will jump athwart the tracks in front of its high-speed nose at the final moment, each trying to be the last to leap and live. It is not rare for several of the Le Jeu's finalists to be struck. Struck tries to decide whether it would be unrealistic or unselfconsciously realistic to keep using his own name as a verb. <laughs> would a man with anything to camouflage use his own name as a verb? <laughs> that several among the La Cour du Prochain Train's survivors and organizational directorate went on to found and comprise Les Assassins des Fauteuils de, photo Rolands is beyond his socio-historical dispute though the precise ideological relation between the BS era's simultaneously chivalric and nihilistic cult of the train's savage tournaments and the presence limbless cell of anti-Onan extremists remain the subject of the same scholarly debate that surrounds the evolution of northern Quebec's La Culte des Baisers Sans Fin into the not particularly dreaded but media-savvy Fils de Montcalm cell credited with the helicoptered dropping of the 12-meter human-waste-filled pie shell onto the rostrum of U.S. President Gentle's second inaugural. Nice. Okay. Cool. <laughs> As with the La Culte du Prochain Train, the cult of the endless kiss of the iron-mining regions surrounding the Gulf of St. Lawrence coalesced around a periodic tournament-style competition. This one comprised of 64 adolescent Canadian participants, of whom one half were female. Thus, the first round pitted 32 couples, each of which consisted of one male and one female Quebecer. Struck is trying to phone Hal, but gets only his room's wearisome phone machine message. Can you ever say pitted without some kind of against in there someplace later in the <laughs> sentence? Struck envisions the wild conceit scholar utterly strafed by this time, the guy's eyes crossed and his head lolling and having to cover one eye with a hand <laughs> just to see a single screen and typing with his nose. But with the apparent self-destructive credulity that characterizes many plagiarists, no matter how gifted, Truck goes ahead and puts the complimentless pitted 
imagined forehand and <laughs> imagining forehand and backhand slaps all the while. Of each pair, one half, designated by lot, filled his or her lungs to capacity with inhaled air, while the other exhaled maximally to empty his or hers. Their mouths were then fitted together and quickly sealed by an organizing cultist with occlusive tape, who then expertly employed the thumb and forefinger of both hands to seal the combatant's nostrils. Thus, the battle of the endless kiss had been joined. The entire lung contents of the designatedly inhaled player was then exhaled orally into the emptied lungs of his or her opponent, who in turn exhaled the inhalation back to its original owner, (laughs) and so forth, back and forth, the same air being traded back and forth with oxygen and carbon dioxide ratios becoming progressively more spartan until the organizer holding their nostrils closed officially declared one combatant or the other to be evanoui or swooned, either fallen to the ground or out on his or her feet. The theoretics of the contest lends itself to an appreciation of the patient, attritive, grinding-down tactics of traditional Quebecois separatistes such as Les Fils de Montcalm and the Front de la Libération de Québec, as opposed to the viciousness and brinksmanship of Le Prochain Train's root cult disabled heirs. The figurative object of the base competition appears, according to Phelps and Phelps, to involve using what one is given with maximally exhaustive levels of efficiency and endurance before excreting it back once it came, a stoic stance toward waste utilization that the Phelps somewhat cavalierly employ to illuminate the Montcalmistes' relative indifference to a continental reconfiguration that constitutes les assassins de fauteuil Roland, whole raison de la guerre outrance. Okay, that's 304. Uh, raison de la guerre outrance is reason for all-out war, which struck inserts without bothering even to check for the definition day had been too befogged to give, which is in and of itself almost suicidal, given that Potrincourt knows exactly how much French facility struck got, or rather, hasn't. Nice. Oh, <sighs> boy. Well, now we have to go back and finish that pip. That Do you chapter. want to? It's only like one more page, right? That little section. Yes, let's just finish it. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so the, but Marat that still doesn't smelling the creosote. Yeah, the creosote that still doesn't explain. Well, I guess he said he defeated the train that took his legs, right? Yes. He so thought, he made the train. Marath thought of his victory over the train that had taken his legs. So I guess that just implies that he had made the leap, even if it took his legs. Yes, correct. Not that he like destroyed the train or something. No, no, just <laughs> a, a mental, a, a spiritual victory. Uh, he attempted in English to sing. I, oh, just for whatever reason, that reminds me of the line from. Um, one of my favorite sketches of all time, the Mr. Show lie detector ske- sketch. Have you ever eaten a train piece by piece after you derailed it with your penis? <laughs> yes. He's not lying. It was for charity. <laughs> uh, Marath attempted in English to sing. Oh, say land of the free. <laughs> <laughs> and they both could feel this queer, dry night desert chill descend with the moon's gibbous rise a powdery wind down below, making dust to shift and cactus needles whistle, the skies as stars adjusting to the color of low flame, but were themselves not yet chilled, even Steeply's sleeveless dress. He and Morath stood and sat in the form-fitting astral spacesuit of warmth their own radiant heat produced. This is what happens in dry night climbs, Morath was learning. It's true. 
Yes. Uh, <laughs> his dying wife had never once left southwestern Quebec. Les Assassins de Photo-Rolands, remote embryonic dissemination ops base down here in southwest USA, seemed to him like the surface of the moon. Four corrugated quonsets and kiln-baked earth, an air that swam and shimmered like the area behind jet engines. Empty and dirty windowed rooms, doorknobs hot to touch and hell stench inside the empty rooms. Steeply was continuing saying nothing while he tamped down another of his long Belgian cigarettes. <laughs> Marath continued to hum the USA song all over the map in terms of key. <laughs> and there we have it. The cult, the cult of the next train. The cult of the next train. What do you think? Uh, yeah, I know there's something particularly gruesome about that. It's really dark. It's really dark. But it, I think what the funny thing that why it's gruesome is even when it's buried in all this sh- shit about like the catapulting of garbage and the giant infants, which I think might be the f- giant feral infants might be my favorite detail out of all of this so far. It's just such a funny image. It is. I think that if you were, if I was as of right now, obviously I haven't read the whole thing, but if I was starting doing like a mini series version of this, the first image that I would want is like pan up from just the, the, uh, the fleet of the feral hamsters and like a, uh, and just the shadow of a giant infant crawling through an empty pine forest yeah. and then like pan up to the blue sky and have the infinite jest logo yep. up in there. And then come back down and to, you're on the at on the, the Enfield Tennis Tennis Academy or something like that. Gotta make this movie. I think we should when we're done with this try to write a pilot episode for uh an infinite jest miniseries. Sure. Um Yeah, well oh, I was gonna say, even with like sandwiched in all that ridiculousness, there's something very um real about the possibility of like depressed economically depressed like working like mining town kids like playing a game such as this you totally know? yeah it makes a lot of sense uh no matter how gruesome it was or could be and i think that 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 conceivable realness of it makes it particularly um gruesome the thing that dfw is nailing is this idea that America as a project is uniquely unmotivated to fight for anything but the individual. Yes. And we're like seeing that right now this year. Like it's proof. Yeah. Versus you have fanatical, you know, people in other countries who are fanatical to the idea of like a country. Yes. And no one cares about that here. Some people people, care, but like not enough. Yeah. People profess to care about it, but they really don't. The thing that I was going to bring up because he's talking about all this Onan like kind of going into the how it's organized. One of the things that was uh, in the discourse this week, even in, briefly, was um, I, I don't even know where it came from, but there was like one day when people were talking about all these like hypothetical breakup maps of North America. Did you see that going no, around? No. I think Felix tweeted one one of these that was like, you know, imagining. I think some representative it, it like resurfaced a meme from like 2004 that was like Jesus Land, that is like this liberal this constant liberal fantasy of, you know, seceding basically the coasts mm-hmm. uh, and maybe Chicago also from like conservative America. And just so we can our, like enjoy our cappuccinos. Like, yeah, our Kappa Frappa, what the fuck a chinos <laughs> uh, by ourselves or like, you know, have our good liberal, our good liberal state and like leave yeah. the conservative state to uh, fend for itself, mm-hmm. um, which is a fantasy. And I, I think somebody also, posited like another one that included like redistributing Canada into America 
And there is something very particular about these fantasies because I do think as Americans we feel very um uh locked in the same room as each other, you know, that mm-hmm. we can't get out of here. Yeah. Uh and it's unclear who is locked in with who yeah. because, you know, the the especially the the people who like you know, I don't know, like the Facebook conservatives who like to like, you know, take pictures of their gun and they're and they're pointing at their dick to like own liberals or whatever. Yeah. Uh feel equally betrayed by our uh what the fuck a Chino East Coast val- values yeah. as we feel betrayed by their New like, Yorker rolling coal. Bag. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But that is the tragedy, is that we are all fucking locked in with each other and we got to figure out how to deal. And any kind of fantasy of remaking the map of North America is just that it is a fantasy of like working out your mutual hatreds for each other onto the, uh, a geographical space. Right. We got, we got to embrace the hate. Yeah. As opposed to, uh, you know, using hate, uh, to try to push us away from the people we hate. And that is the thing that, that is like maybe the larger like the energy shifting project is that loving America me it really means learning to love each other, which is impossible. Impossible for most most people. people yeah, what, no one has enough money to <laughs> have the capacity to do that. <laughs> yeah, nobody has any like respect for each other. You know, I was just reading this thing this morning. This uh, I believe a Grub Street piece about how. Uh, miserable it is to be a restaurant worker right now because yeah. nobody has any fucking respect for restaurant workers. Yeah. Well, it's also or workers or general, just the people around them who do who are in the, who are in the end just other versions of themselves that they are alienated from. You know. Right. It's impossible to see that person's work as comparable to, to your work. your work, even though you are both way closer in economic status than Jeff yeah. Bezos, or even not even just the economic status, just like in personhood status. Yeah, you know. I mean that I I did see. I don't know if it was Grub Street, but it, like just the idea that like who is going out to eat right now inside mm-hmm. with mask offs, like who the self selected like part of the uh, population that is like not staying home assholes who yes. don't tip it's it's not the people who are like oh i'm so sorry i'm i'm not gonna you know run you in for five different sauce refills and then uh uh tip you five percent those are the people who are coming out yeah i mean but that's the thing is that we are all also stuck in that same cycle of alienation like when we walked p- past uh dinosaur barbecue the other day and saw mm-hmm. that it was like filled to the gills with people unmasked people. unmasked people eating inside the other day and our both of our immediate reactions to that to, was to look with at each other with like disgust yeah for these for these people and i don't know i think that that is also like it's part of the same thing that you just have to get over is being like disgusted by by the people who have who behave differently with you and not want to literally exclude them from your country you know right yeah, we're all, we're all we have to find together. we have to find lo- love for the ma- unmasked eaters as we find love for the masked servers who accompany them. True, we have to get in the pit and try, and to, try love to love someone. someone. Yeah, or in the, the barbecue pit. Get in the barbecue pit and try to love someone, lest the lest we be the ones crushed by the catapulted garbage. Yeah, <laughs> let he let he in the uh, glass house cast the first, first garbage trebuchet. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, any. Any other details I'm trying to pull out? Because obviously I have the advantage of like being able to look at the whole page and like mm-hmm. you're just kind of processing things sentence by sentence. Obviously, Struck is one of the ETA kids. He's friends. He's one of the older kids. He's yes. friends with Hal. Yes. He's got some daddy trauma in there too. Oh yeah, I asked you the other day. 
uh, I was trying, maybe, which was maybe a leading question. Uh, is Infinite Jest a book about beating up your dad? Yeah, about having and to I was confused dad. by that at first, and then I was like, yes. Yeah, it seems it's like a dad that, book. I it's think, not a mom book. There's moms in it. There's mom energy, but, but it seems, it's about dads. It seems to be especially about like inheriting trauma from your dad, and especially as we've seen that the dad of Jack off in Condensa, J.O. in Condensa, uh, is the source of the the danger, the threat that is at the heart of this book of the uh, the James the, is the dad. Yeah, Hal's that's, dad. That's what I'm saying. Is yeah, that yeah, he is okay. also the source of of the titular Infinite Jest, yeah. which. I assume is like the the main villain or threat of the book, yeah. As it as it were, uh, and so I was just wondering because I saw somebody tweeting something about this is like is one of the main themes of this that Hal needs to like defeat his father, yeah. Because in my you know that that thing that there's only like three stories: a man comes to town, a man goes, a man goes on an adventure. I forget what the third one is, but <laughs> I would posit the third one is a man beats up his dad. Yeah, yeah. Um, which is you know one of the the eternal stories. Yeah, having to beat up your dad. You got at a at a certain point, everyone's got to beat up their dad. And it, yeah, you have you simply have to in simply the course of your not. life. Part of it is learning how to beat up your dad. <laughs> uh, oh, also, I don't know if this was clear before, but it's directly stated in here that the infinite jest is like terroristic tool of the separatists well that's what they're trying to figure out is like you know right now it's clear that james and condensa made it um it's not clear why and it's not clear how it got in the hands of um terrorists like right now it's not even clear what like which terror there's clearly so many terrorist groups it's not clear who's doing it yeah um, and that's what like both Hugh Steebley's trying to figure out, Marath's trying to like play the game. Um, but obviously and this, there's connections. Steebley and Marath might be in a long term dance of betraying each other. Betray each other. Um, obviously, like even the idea that, you know, Avril and Condenza is Quebec qua. Yeah. And uh they're they're even learning in school. They're like about this stuff, yeah. Yeah. So like that's like built into their education. Why? Or like, what are they trying to have people do? Yeah, it's a yeah, it's a little murky. Yeah, and again, I mean, I enjoyed that. I enjoyed that academic footnote. I thought it was funny. As are all the footnotes. I mean, that seems to be where the the big jokes lie, the big conceptual jokes of this thing lie. Uh, but again, I find the the actual conversation between Marath and Steeply a little sloggy. It is compared funny, yeah. to compared to everything else, which is sloggy, but in an entertaining way. Because especially like. DFW is clearly like working out his like philosophical like big big philosophical questions like what does it mean to love someone like and I'm kind of like I don't really like (laughs) it's also the first thing one of the first things that we've gotten to that uh that cuts directly back to the same scene with no time jump yeah and it won't uh it that I think they only have one scene together that's strung out through the entire that's strung out through almost the entire book yeah all right well okay (laughs) <laughs> I'm sure I'll, I will find it more. I'm as with everything, as more context is given to it, yeah, it'll be more entertaining. I mean, we haven't even hung out in the rehab house yet. No, like we're a tenth of the way through the book right now. It's also still I'm gone. still just now even laughing from the first time we meet him of steeply getting to the top of the hill and looking at uh, Marath and being like, "How'd you get up here?" <laughs> yeah, that's the, the to hear to hear the squeak. Yeah, to hear the, the squeak. The idea that these wheelchair assassins are like super fast, stealthy, and strong. Yeah. It's I don't know. It's funny to me. There are certainly some people out there that I wish would hear the squeak. 
Hey, look at you. Spicy. At the end of this well, podcast. I, mean, I will not say who, of course. Yeah. But. Also, how, how about that? Um, the depositing of like the pie full of uh, like waste. Excrement onto an inauguration. Yeah. Gentle uh, by, second inauguration. By helicopter. Yeah. Awesome. So that's, that's lit. I would also love to see that. I would, I would love to see that. For, for sure. Uh, well, so as I mentioned offhandedly at the beginning of this episode, I just thought, or before we started recording, I was saying that, um, just in terms of like actually producing a pocket podcast and, and pure content that I felt we should keep the readings, uh, down a little bit. So it would be like a little less reading, a little more talking, but here we are again, uh, one hour and eight minutes into an episode, uh, we thought we might do two today, but now I do not think we should. <laughs> no, that's that's a lot of reading. I think the problem is that it's really hard to find a solid piece of narrative in this book that can't be stretched out, of, like it, that won't take at least like 45 minutes. <laughs> I know. Well, the first few <laughs> chunks, I felt like we were like perfect little ones where it was like 15, 20 minutes of reading and we do 10 minutes of talking. But then you hit a footnote like that and we're like, well, fuck, we got to read this whole damn thing. Yeah, yeah. But such is the essential stupidity of this project of being like, we're going to do it and now we are prisoners of this book and its stupid format <laughs> and when things happen we just got to do it D- david foster wallace did say that you're not this book is not meant to be read aloud well, fuck you david we're doing it anyway uh you're you're not here to boss us around yeah so we're gonna boss your text around you can't tell me what to do yes as um as uh my good friend slavo zizek would say you must be the stalin of my work and take it apart as 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 much you see before I am your prisoner as you as I am the interviewee. Thank you. I love that. Yes. Uh more Slavoj content coming out sometime this year. New new Slavoj dropping soon. Yeah, new Slavoj dropping soon. All right. Well now we're just rambling. Again, thank you for anybody any of the you freaks and sickos who might have made it to the end of this. No more gift yeah. promising because this is turning into be a, a more elaborate undertaking than I assumed it would be. But yeah. uh Thank you, the literal dozen, literally dozens who uh, are following us on this uh, project. <laughs> Hopefully, these little ending ramblings are, um, I don't know, enlightening, entertaining. Yeah. Uh, the Infinite ja- Cast Pod, the Infinite Cast Pod at gmail.com. We mm. get, we've gotten a few emails from people, but we love hearing from you. Yeah. Anything else? No. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Bye. Bye.